Amen. Let's go ahead and bow our head as we come to the Word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your goodness. Father, I thank you for such a a great report from the youth, and I thank you, Lord, that that, uh, it's going to produce fruit in their lives, not just this morning, but for, for, for years to come. This will continue producing fruit in their lives and the lives of the people around them, Father, and in this church. Father, we thank you for today. I pray that our hearts are ready to receive the word that you have for us, Father, that it would also produce fruit in our own hearts. Thank you for speaking to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hallelujah. So we're going to go ahead and continue on in the book of uh, Philippians. This is Part three, not chapter three. We're actually starting chapter two today. Um, this is part three of this series. I think, uh, what do we got, Joseph? Probably another six or weeks or so, six or eight weeks of it uh, uh, coming up as we go through about a half a chapter, um, a message. Um, but today we're starting in uh, chapter two, and Paul's actually going to continue where he left off at the end of chapter one, advocating for unity in the church. But you guys know the church should be united? And I don't just mean our church. Of course, we should be united in our church, right? We should be of the same mind. But the church as a whole should be united as well. And to be clear, unity doesn't mean uniformity. One of the things that I thought was brilliant is Blake was speaking about uh, about, uh, Bryn, talking about the signature that they have. That's exactly what it is. We all have our own signatures, but we can be united with a different signature. So we can look at the churches around us, and we have our own signature, our own way of of impacting and writing on this world, but as long as we're united with a common faith, with a common Jesus, then we can work together, even if some of the little stuff doesn't match up. You know, there's, there's, there's different types of churches for all different types of people. Because we can have, there's, there's some, some people that, that just still want to sing hymns. There's some people that want to do music like we do. And there's some people that want to do music even louder than we do. I know that breaks your guys' heart. But there's people that do even louder music. Hallelujah. Some people still want, you know, the, the, the hard-backed pews. Some people want nice chairs. Some people, like the cowboy churches, they do their church off of the back of a trailer in many places. All different signatures but we can still be united in faith as long as we're of one mind and Christ is our center. And that's what Paul's talking about. He wants to see unity in the church. Now, he's specifically dealing with the Philippian church today, but I don't think that it's limited to the Philippian church. I think that Paul wanted the Philippian church to be united with the Corinthian church, even though they were from different areas, had different signatures. And then Paul's going to talk about that. He's actually going to demonstrate how we're to do that. How many know that, that that's a good thing to say out loud? really hard to do in practice many times for two reasons sometimes the other stuff can be so different you know if you're a person that then wants to sing acapella and hymns and you come into a church with the big lights and stage and everything going on that's a culture shark it's it's hard to work together but it doesn't mean that we can't sometimes as paul's going to say we're going to have to think about the other people if we put other people as more you know what Maybe we won't do the, the big music, and we'll, we'll go ahead and set that aside so that we can uh, come alongside another group, you know, because we do things differently. You know, the Springs Church, um, they've been such a blessing to us. And they're, they're a, a free will Baptist church. We're a non-denominational church that's, that's charismatic and Pentecostal. 
So there's some different theology that that we have. There's some stuff that that we may not necessarily agree on. We interpret differently. we got the same Jesus. We believe that He's the only way. We believe that He was born of a virgin, that He lived, that He died, and He rose again from the grave so that we could have newness of life. And we believe that salvation is a free gift, but they don't believe in speaking in tongues and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and we do. Does that mean that we can't fellowship together? Absolutely not. We can still be united, but not be uniform. And the truth is, they've come alongside of us over the years and invested in us probably more than any other church has, period. They've been amazing. Even though that we're different, we've still stood united. Amen? So it's harder than you might think, but it can be done because a a secret weapon, if you will. And that's Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? So let's go ahead and get started. Philippians 2, 1 through 2 says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So Paul ends the last chapter saying this. He said, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then he wants to hear of them standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side. This is that unity that he was talking about. Because unity is important. It's important to God. And it's important to the body of Christ. And if we're talking about specifically in the, in the local churches or in our church, that means that we're to be standing together. That means that we're to be supporting one another. That means that we're not supposed to be arguing and fighting with one another and putting one another down. One of the biggest detriments to the church at large is that denominations are infighting with one another and they're putting each other down, saying how they're they're wrong. And instead of uniting together, we're being separated. And I want to tell you that that doesn't actually look very appealing from the outside in. Nobody wants to be part of that kind of family. And in the church, that's the same thing. We should be lifting each other up. How many of you know that in a family, people do stuff that pisses the other person off? The person that can make me the maddest of anybody that I know is my sister. I mean, you have no idea, but I love her more than anything. I'll stand by her more than anything. And that happens in the church, too. We do stuff that irritates one another, but we have a choice to make. How do we handle that? Do we stay united or do we push each other away? The reality is the only person that's not going to let you down, the only person that's not going to upset you and eventually have an, uh, an impact on you negatively is, is, is God, is Jesus Christ. He will never let you down, but everybody in this room will. I will. The question is, how are we going to handle it? Are we going to stay united? Or are we going to separate and push and leave? So Paul makes a couple statements here as he's talking about that. One, he says, if there's any encouragement... In Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. You know, one of these things that when we read this, we say it says, if there is, our first thought is, is maybe Paul's asking or maybe Paul's not sure. It's, guys, is there encouragement in Christ? Is there comfort and love? But the thing is, is that the way this is written in the Greek, it's not a question, it's a statement of truth. Or we might think of it as a rhetorical question. The answer is yes. You don't have to answer the answer is yes. Is there any encouragement in Christ? Yes. Any comfort from love? Yes. Participation in the Spirit? Yes. Any affection and sympathy? The answer is yes. These are rhetorical. 
So we know that Paul's saying that, yes, there are these things. So what is he talking about? Is there encouragement in Christ? The word translated encouragement is the same word when he spoke of the Holy Spirit as counselor or comforter in John 14, 16. And John 14, 16 says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. And when he's talking about that same word, for encouragement is used in those passages there, that helper that he gives us, the, the encourager that he gives us. So every believer has received encouragement, exhortation, and comfort from Christ. That's one of the things that we have in common. If you are born again, if you have received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have received this. You have received encouragement in Christ. And I know that because I know what happened to me, and I'm not special. I know you guys think I'm special, but I'm not. God doesn't love me any more than he loves any of you. And so I know if God does something for me, then I know that he's doing it for you. And I am encouraged that I can have a clean conscience. I am encouraged that the stupid stuff that I did, and I've done some, I'm not going to tell you about it, don't ask, but some of the stuff, I'm encouraged that that's not held against me because Christ paid the penalty for that, Amen. So I've been encouraged in Christ. So that means, that means that, yes, there is encouragement in Christ. And he says, is there any comfort in love? And once again, I know that all who are born again have experienced the love of God. And we have because we understand that he didn't hold anything back. He gave everything for us. And the Bible says, and I think we would all agree, that there's no greater love than to give your life for a friend. And he gave his life for me. He gave his life for you. And there is comfort in this love for a couple of reasons. One, I think there's comfort because when you see that somebody's willing to go to that great lengths for you, you understand that their love is not going to give up. It's not going to quit. When they've already given everything, they're not going to pull back. You can't say that they're holding back because he gave everything. And I, I know that if God loves me like that, he's going to continue giving everything. He's never going to pull back. He's never going to quit. His love's not going to run out. It's not going to be extinguished. And I am comforted by that kind of love. And two, the other reason that I'm comforted is the result of that love is freedom and life. Man, I know before I was saved, before I received Jesus, before I really pressed in, I had an idea of what was right, what was wrong. I knew of the scriptures. I knew how the life I was supposed to live, but I kept failing over and over and over again. But when I pressed into him and I received that free gift, something inside of me changed. And I had freedom. I could finally had the ability to stop doing the things that I would, I, would, I would beg God for forgiveness every night and then just get up and just do them again the next day. I was finally had freedom from that. And it wasn't because... I had a list of things that I could or couldn't do, but I was changed. Something inside of me changed. And it comforts me now to know that I'm no longer a slave to sin. I'm no longer in bondage to death. It comforts me to know that I can say that, that you know, I, I want to live like Paul said. He looked at last week. He said, said, you know, to be absent from the body is to be with Christ. And he says, you know what? I think that would be better. But I also know that you guys need me here. I, I, I completely get that. I know that I need to be here. I like being with my wife and my kids and with you guys. But I know that if something were to happen, I would be with the Lord. And I'm comforted by that kind of love. And then he says, we have participation in the Spirit. 
When you're born again, you know the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. You participate in the Holy Spirit. And all believers are united with this fellowship in the Spirit. And then he says, finally, if there's any affection and sympathy. If you're born again, you should have an understanding of grace. You know, that was the problem with the, uh, the slave who was forgiven for his massive amount of debt. And then he went after the, the, his, his other slave, a guy that he probably worked with, owed him a little bit of money. And he said, let me have that money or I'm throwing you in jail. Then the master heard of it and he said, wait a minute, I just forgave you of all this and now you're holding this little debt against this guy? That's because he didn't have a true understanding of what he was actually forgiven of. The problem that I think is that he was forgiven of that massive debt and he thought it was a temporary thing. He thought that one day or another the shoe was going to drop. So he needed to have something stored up for when it came after him. He didn't understand and know your debt has been forgiven completely. And that's what happens with us is that, that if we don't have an understanding of grace and we end up holding people to a different standard, we end up uh, uh, criticizing them when they fail or they mess up, instead of having an affection and love for people, we end up putting them down. Instead of having sympathy when somebody's going through a hard thing, we go, ooh, at least it's not me. See, this, when we recognize what has been given to us, the grace that's been extended to us, the, the, the forgiveness that's been extended to us, it should compel us to give it to others. And when we see the affection that God poured out on us, it should compel us to to give that same affection towards others. We should see others as God sees them and care for others as God cares for them. And because we're made in His image, His love and His affection can manifest in us because those are the characteristics of God that we have when we're born again. Amen. But basically Paul says, if there are these things, and like we said, there are, then do these things. So he says, if there are these things, encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the Spirit, and affection and sympathy, which we know there are, then he says, then do this, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind. I understand fully what he's talking about when I see you guys grow in the faith, when I see you guys loving one another and supporting one another in maturing Because you're living the lives that God has called you to live, which means that I'm living the life that God called me to live to help you and encourage you to get to that state in your life. You see, my joy comes from Christ. But that I think what Paul's talking about, that joy being made complete, is is seeing it live out in others. And seeing it manifest in the real world, tangibly, not just, just something, this idea, I'm going to have joy because he, he, he loves me. And, and that's true. We have that. We, because he gave everything, his joy is our strength. We have joy because what he did, because our focus is on him. But it is an amazing thing to see it manifest right in front of you and the people in your lives. And when I see you guys grow, it impacts my joy because I'm seeing it lived out. And the truth is, is that, that it doesn't just impact me, it impacts the people around you. And when we we look around and we see people living the life God called them to live and acting compassionately and having one mind, it encourages all of us to continue to grow closer together. Your friends and family are touched. Your co-workers are touched when they see these things that are going on in your life. And the truth is, is that we're social beings. How many know that you're a social being? 
We're created that way because God's a social being. Right in the beginning, he said, let us make man in our image. You ever wonder why he's talking plural? Because there's the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God is a social being. Three persons, one God. And we're made in his image. So that means the characteristics that he has, we have. That means that we are social beings. That's why that when we, we get off away from people, it, it typically impacts our life. Now I get it. Some people are more social than others. But not very many people can live as a hermit. It'll drive them crazy. But when you live the life that God called you to live, then you're going to impact others positively. And what that means is being of the same mind, or another way to say that would be the same attitude, having the same love, which is Christ's love, being in full accord and end of one, of one mind. That means that we're actually having one goal, the same goal, and that's to, to, to build His church, to preach the gospel. Then He would be the preeminent, preeminent in every part of our life. If He is those things and we're of one accord, all the other stuff will fall in line. That's one of the things that, that uh, young Christians will often ask is, can I do this or can I do that? And we're learning and we're growing and that's why they ask that. But there comes a point when you mature and you become in one accord and one mind with Christ and mature believers that you don't have to ask that question anymore because you don't have a desire to do things that aren't in accord with what God wants. Then in Philippians 2, 3-4, through 4, he goes on and says, Do nothing from selfish ambi- ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. I think one of the biggest problems that we have in this world right now is that, and even in the church, it's not even just in the world, but we have this mentality of looking out for number one, looking out for ourselves. And we're... we're we're raised that way, right? We're, from, from day one, we're, we're raised to, to not be taken advantage of. We're, we're taught to put ourselves first. We're taught to, to, to ask, what is in it for me? It's actually become part of the culture. And in the Philippian church, you know, one of the things I love about the Bible is we're like, I watch the news and I'm like, man, we are screwed up as a people. And then I read the Bible and go, oh, we've always been screwed up. We just need Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you look at the Corinthian church and you're like, wow, this looks like just like the United States right now, which means there's nothing new under the sun. People haven't changed. People are, are the same. We just have, we just have uh, louder technology. Yeah. So the Philippian church wasn't any different than us. They were looking out for themselves. We'll find out here in a few chapters, there's a couple people that are kind of button heads with one another. They didn't realize that they could be united by not being uniform. And, uh, but Paul teaches a better way. He says, first, if you want to do this, if you want to have this one mind, this one accord, stop doing stuff from selfish ambition or conceit. So what does this mean, to, to this, this selfish ambition or conceit? It means that the motivations for your ambition are important. You know what it doesn't say? It doesn't say don't have ambition. That's a problem with a lot of young kids. They don't have any ambition. Like, man, they must have preached this message over the week and he said that their lives are on pause instead of on play. No ambition. If what you're doing is strictly to, to improve yourself 
out of pride so you can say that I can do this, you're, you're missing the mark. Because this kind of attitude where it's all about you, the reason you're doing anything, and people do good things in that name, right? People donate money to charity just so they can say, look how much I gave. They're missing the mark. It's, it's a pride thing. It's an ambition thing. And actually what happens when we have this kind of attitude where we're only concerned in improving ourselves out of either conceit or selfish ambition, we start to try to win at any cost. You've probably known people like that. They'll throw you right under the bus just so they can get ahead. And that's not a godly way. Because if you're crawling over or you're tearing other people down to get where you're, you want to be going, this is decidedly an unchristian attitude. So he says, do nothing for selfish ambition or conceit. But like I said, it's not saying to not be ambitious. I mean, you should be ambitious. Ambition's not a bad thing as long as your motives are proper. 1 Timothy 3.1 says this, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Well, to aspire is to have ambition. Amen? So is, having ambition is not a problem. It's what your, your motives behind it. If you're desiring to be a, a pastor, it's not a bad thing. Matter of fact, the Bible says that is a good thing. If you're doing it to glorify and bless, to glorify and bless God and to bless others. If that's why you're doing it, because you have a call on your life, then you're doing it for the right reasons. If you're doing it because you saw one of those guys on TV and you want to have your own private jet and be worshipped by others, you're missing the mark. And maybe pick the wrong profession to try to aspire to if you're going for that, to be honest with you. There's nothing wrong with wanting to better yourself. I would encourage you to do everything excellently for the glory of God. Get better at what you do at work so you can glorify God in what you're doing. Get better. If you play an instrument, get better at it. If you sing, get better at it. If you, whatever your skills or talent, work on getting better at it, but not to glorify yourself, but to glorify God who gave you the ability to do that very thing. He then says, in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Some of you have heard me say that a lot. Because I think it's important. But before we get into it, let's take a look at the word humility because so many people don't understand what it actually means. Being humble is not about seeing how low you can go. There was a time when, when uh, and you can see it uh, expressed in movies and that stuff, but uh, being pious and, and being ragged and not having anything was the epitome of being spiritual. You know, and there ended up being like a contest about who could be lower, who could be have less, which, if you think about it, it's just being prideful on how little you have. It was a contest to see who could be lower. So that's not humility. Humility is having a correct understanding of yourself. Jesus never denied who he was, yet he was considered humble. Jesus, when he was asked, are you the king of the Jews? And he told, he told uh, uh, Pontius Pilate, he says, he says uh, uh, what was the exact word? Uh, you have said so. Which I found out recently, what he was basically saying, that, that you have said so, that expression, it would be like us saying, it is as you said. So I, I always thought it was weird. Why would he say, you have said so? That seems weird. You have, are, you, like, are you the authority? But what he was saying is, yes, it's as you said. So he, he wasn't afraid to say he was the king of the Jews. He wasn't afraid to say that, that he was the son of God. 
matter of fact, that's why they they went ahead and, and took him to Pontius Pilate because they said, "Are you the son of? Are you the the Messiah? Are you the son of God?" He says, "It is as you said." Basically, yes. So he wasn't afraid to say who he was, but that didn't mean he wasn't humble. You see, being humble is about correctly evaluating who you are. It's okay to say that you know what I am holy. I am perfect. I am pure. Now, you ought to live like who you are on the inside, what Christ has done inside of you. But to say those things, as long as you understand that you're not those things of your own volition, but it was Christ who made you that way, that's not a problem. If you are good at something, I don't think it's, it's wrong to say that God has gifted me to be good at this. So I think we should be good at things. God has gifted you with different things so that you can make an impact in the body of Christ. And it's okay to be good at those things. It's even okay to accept, to, to accept a, a praise for it as long as you recognize where it came from. The moment you think it's all you, that's when you get into trouble. I've been on the worship team in many churches for a long time, and, and one of the things that, that, that drives me crazy is the opposite end of it. It's that, that hyper-spiritual. Wow, you, you sounded great today. Oh, it was just the Lord. And they, they, it almost becomes a contest in the other way, that, that prideful, how humble can I be? Just say thank you. And in your own heart, know that it's you that did these things. It was God that did these things. And if you know my story, my testimony, I, I lived my life saying, thinking that I could do everything, and, and I got a rude awakening one day. If you haven't heard it, I can tell you a different time. I'm already going to be way late today. Sorry. The thing about this, this expression, this is my, one of my, my most commonly given marriage advice to people. Count the other person as more significant than yourself. If you want a relationship, any relationship, if this is the cornerstone, the foundation, your relationship will flourish. Count the other person as more important than yourself. I think if we all did that as a society, all the world's problems would go away. If we would just consider everybody else as more important than ourselves. But then we have the problem that, that arises when you have a relationship of two people. Only one person lives that way and the other one takes advantage. You run into an area of abuse that takes everybody living this way or you have when both people don't live that way and then you just have a mess you don't have any relationship at all except for maybe a negative one but if we had this mind this act to look at each other's interests first right considers others more significant than yourself you look not only to his own interests but to also to the interests of others that means that sometimes you're going to put their interests in front of your interests Remember what I was talking about earlier? If we were to come together as a church, we don't have to together with other churches or other people and do everything the way that we do them. Because we can say, you know what? I think we're going to go ahead and let them do what they want to do because that's more important. Unity and considering them more is more important than getting everything our way. And the relationship will strengthen. I think that if we all had this attitude amongst ourselves, the world would change. I think the world would be a better place. But I think before we start looking to change the world, we need to look to start changing ourselves. So that's the one thing is I can't make Monique act a certain way. <laughs> I'm not saying she's stubborn. I could have used any person. I'm not saying she's not stubborn. But I could... <laughs> 
I think the reason why I like Monique so much is she reminds me so much of my sister. I get along with her because she just has the same attitude as my sister. <laughs> Which is me saying that my sister is wonderful and loving and, and she's amazing. <laughs> Let's pick a different person. I couldn't make Jen do anything. I couldn't make any of you guys in this room do anything. I can't force you to do anything. That's the problem in relationships. We try to make the other person change. And we always look outwardly instead of lookwardly. Listen, I can't make somebody else live like I or anybody else is more important, but I can choose to live my life in such a way that everybody else is more important than me. Imagine what the church would look like if we all did it, though. If we all considered everybody else is more important than us. Philippians 2, 5-7 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. You know, this mind that we're supposed to be having, or this attitude would be another way to translate that, this attitude that we're supposed to have that he just described in the last few verses, it seems like a difficult task sometimes. It seems like, how are we supposed to accomplish Like You don't know the people that I'm dealing with, Pastor Wayne. That's true. But I've dealt with you, so I figure this is a good place to start. You see, that's the thing, is that this is a difficult thing to think about, especially when the people on the other end are difficult. And one of the greatest detriments to having this attitude of saying other people are more important than myself, I'm going to look to their interests before my own, one of the biggest detriments that we can have is say, you know what, I'll start doing that when they start doing that. I'll start treating them as important when they start treating me as important. And I always wonder, what if Jesus took the same attitude? You know what, I'll come down and die for them once they get their stuff together. You know what, once they decide, you know, once they all agree that they're going to follow me if I come down there, then I'll come down there and give my life for them. What if Jesus had that attitude? We'd be in a different position, a different situation right now. He'd still be up there waiting. But Jesus took the first step. Because he says that we should have this mind among us, which is ours in Christ Jesus, because he lives inside of us. What did Paul say? To live is Christ. We're supposed to live like Him, to look like Him. And, and Jesus, though He was in the form of God, God, Jesus was 100% God and 100% man, but He laid aside His deity. He stepped away from it to become 100% man for us. And it says that though He was in the form of God, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but He emptied Himself taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He didn't wait for us. He put down all the stuff that if we would have had, I don't think any of us would want to let that go. And he, he set it aside to come down to us. Jesus took the first step. And we need to understand that this attitude that was in him is the same attitude that is in us if we will let him live through us. And we can take the first step. I don't need somebody else to consider me more important than them for me to act that way towards them. I don't need someone to treat me awesome before I'll treat them awesome. See, what's amazing to me is Jesus knew the outcome. And he still came down anyway. He emptied himself just the same, just to save us. And he knew that he would be rejected. He knew that he was going to be killed. He knew that he was going to be crucified. He knew that he'd be taken advantage of, be mocked, be spit on. He knew all those things. He knew he would be hurt, yet he still came. 
for us. And so many times in our own lives, we're afraid to take that first step because we're afraid of being hurt. We're afraid of being taken advantage of. And if I'm being honest with you, if you decide to live your life like this, you will be hurt sometimes. You will be taken advantage of sometimes. Because some people aren't going to live the same way. But Jesus considered it worth it. And I know in my own life, I know it's worth it as well. Because sometimes you get taken advantage of. Sometimes you get hurt. But sometimes you impact and change somebody else's life because they see Christ's love inside of you. And they wonder, why is it this person is treating me like this when nobody else in the world is? What is different about them? And you can say it's Jesus. I believe that the outcome and impact in someone's life and the joy that is completed in me because I see Christ's life and what he accomplished living it out tangibly in my life is worth the occasional pain. You know, the only, the only way to never feel pain is to never put yourself out there. But I think in the end, if that's the way you live your life, you're going to realize how much pain you've actually been in this entire time. And Jesus did it to this extent. In verse 8, he says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by become a, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. My question is to you, how willing or how far are you willing to go to have this mind amongst yourselves? See, Jesus was willing to give it all. He gave his life, considering us all more important than what he had to endure. He gave his life for those who would spit on him, mock him, torture him. And not only that, he gave it in such a way that he became a curse for us by being hung on a tree. He took away everything that should have been ours for us. And as a man, Jesus was no different than you or I. He felt pain. He felt shame. He felt hurt when he was betrayed. He even asked God if there's any other way we were in our Bible study, we were talking about the, the tears that, that or the sweat, uh, drops of blood that Jesus sweat in the garden because he was so stressed out. We learned that, that that's actually a, a real condition. That wasn't unique to Jesus. That can actually happen. The capillaries and blood vessels can break near your tear ducts and you can actually sweat blood if you're so stressed out and anxious. So Jesus was, was, was not looking forward to going to the cross. How many of you know that? And he said, God, if there's any other way, just like us, he didn't want to go through that, but he said, you know what? Not my will, but your will be done. So when we look at other people and we see somebody who may not be the, the most easy person to work with, and the last thing we want to do is put them first, maybe we do it and say, you know what, God? Not my will, but your will be done. And see what happens. So once again, I ask you, how far are you willing to go to have this attitude or this mind among you? Are you willing to put your interests under another's? Are you willing to put their interest above yours even at significant cost? I think if we were all willing to do that, this world would be such a much better place. And we'll end on this verse today. Therefore God, verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
You know, Jesus gave everything freely, and because of this, God glorified him. He approved of his sacrifice by raising him from the dead. And the truth is, one day every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess. Either now or on his return. We do it now, we do it of our own volition. And we do it, and when we do it, we receive that free gift of life. But there'll become a time when that's too late. And they'll still confess. They'll still bow. But they won't be able to receive that free gift of life because they waited till it was too late. When I look at the life of Jesus, I'm always just blown away by what He was willing to do for us. Because like I said, He was 100% man feeling all the same stuff that we do and He still chose to treat us as more important than all the stuff that He was going for. The Bible says it was for the joy set before Him that He despised the shame. If you didn't know, that joy set before Him was you. And I think that when we take up the same attitude in our own lives and we put others ahead of ourselves and we put their interests ahead of our own, then we're glorifying God and we're glorifying Jesus inside of us when we act like Him, when we live the life that He has put inside of us because we're recognizing the reality of what He has done for us. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and bow our heads.